0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, the NFID, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Guests include humble heroes and future leaders working together towards a shared vision of healthier lives through effective prevention and treatment.
1: Welcome to the NFID podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO. And with me today is my co-host, NFID Medical Director, Dr. Bill Schaffner. This year, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID and reflect on our accomplishments while building momentum for the future, we are talking with many of the leaders who helped advance the field of infectious diseases. Our guest today is Dr. Bruce G. Gellin, Senior Vice President and Chief of Global Public Health Strategy at the Rockefeller Foundation. He has spent decades working to promote public health. As Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health and Director of the National Vaccine Program Office at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, he led the development of the National Vaccine Plan and the creation of the nation's first pandemic influenza preparedness and response plan. He was a medical officer at NIH, an EIS officer at CDC, and has served as a technical expert and a key advisor on global immunization. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Vanderbilt University, where he later founded the National Network for Immunization Information to provide science-based information about vaccines long before misinformation or disinformation were the buzzwords they are today. In 2022, and if i honored him with the John P. Utes Leadership Award in recognition of his longstanding public health service and his notable career shaping public health policy. When not biking, traveling, or spending time with family, Bruce is likely making wry observations of the world around him with a great sense of humor that endears him to colleagues and friends. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: No, it's, it's fun to be with both of you again, thanks.
1: So, Bruce, in looking back over the course of your career, we're interested in how you first got interested in infectious diseases. A lot of people ask me that question,
2: and I can actually trace it back to a discrete point in time, and Bill will know this one. It was ben Keane, is a second-year medical student at Cornell, now while Cornell. There was a class unlike any run by Dr. Ben Keane who was the doctor to the world. And he had a book that was called something like, uh, My Patients Are the Famous and Infamous, Everywhere from Panama to Park Avenue. And that tells you who he was. But he had a parasitology course. He brought in his friends from around the world who he had trained with or who he had trained. And for three weeks, that's all we did. Lectures in the morning, labs in the afternoon, and then long nights with all the people in the evenings. We got to learn about parasitology and hear those stories as told by him. He sat at the front of the classroom in a three-piece suit, smoking a cigar with his dog on his lap, telling stories of of his escapades. And that was really the beginning of starting to see infectious diseases here with a focus on parasitology and tropical medicine, as told by the people who are on the front lines. And that was addictive.
0: So there isn't any doubt, Bruce, that uh, Ben Keen was the most colorful teacher I've ever run into. I'm going to continue to ask you about stories, because I know you have some interesting tales to tell about your career at HHS and your role in shaping the government's first pandemic plan. Can you tell us about those days? And did those efforts pay off the way you hoped they would? Well, Bill, you remember that because
2: with the lure of going to Washington and having this big job is when I left you at Vanderbilt. One of those was hard not to do. The National Vaccine Program Office has somewhat of a storied history. It was at HHS for a while, then it was tasked out to CDC. And after 9-11, when there was much more talk about vaccines, was the recognition that there was not a place within the Department of Health and Human Services with the word vaccine on the door. So they then moved the National Vaccine Program Office there. And I remember going there and interviewing with the Secretary Thompson and hearing emphasis at that point on the need for a pandemic plan, having learned from his staff that the United States didn't have one. And he said, well, this is your job. I said, well, that's fine, except there's more to pandemics than just vaccine. And he looked at me and said, do you think I care? Start typing. So that was really how it began. So I came in 2002. The story that I heard was on the morning of 9-11. There was a briefing set for him by the leaders of the department to talk about pandemic influenza and the threat of pandemic influenza. Needless to say, that meeting got disrupted with the events of 9-11. And now a year later, other things have settled down, and they brought the national vaccine program up to HHS. What was lucky for me, I guess lucky, is that this was now important all the way up to the Secretary of Health and Human Services and to the White House. So what was essentially a sort of a mid-level role of a coordinating role within the Department of Health and Human Services to keep the arms and legs of the Department on Vaccines and Vaccination going the same direction was ratcheted way up, which put me in the spotlight and got me to many more places than would have
0: had without that. I was impressed when you brought this plan through to its conclusion. My impression was that there had been many efforts in the past to create a pandemic response plan, and they'd languished and not succeeded, didn't have good leadership. But you worked throughout the government to bring the various agencies together and to actually create a document that people found useful. It suddenly provided a structure and a sense of direction when and if (laughs) a pandemic would strike. Hats off to you still for that. I remember these briefings with the president in the White House that would start by him
2: asking Julie Gerberding, tell me first about the flooding in New Orleans. And frankly, it was then the after effects of Katrina and the recognition that if you weren't prepared for some big, bad thing, you were in big trouble is what then pushed this over the line. And the one other story was in all these meetings, The director of the Office of Management and Budget would bring in his – he had a toy calculator from from Toys R Us, this giant thing with the buttons. And he would always wave this around because they knew people were going to come asking for big money. And Bush turned to him and said, put it away. They'll tell you what they need. And then we went back and over the next couple of weeks developed an $8 billion budget. It was higher than at one point, but an $8 billion budget that became the supplemental. So, you know, if it weren't for Katrina and an administration that now realized that they're going to have to make huge investments that they weren't otherwise going to make, none of that would have happened.
1: Bruce, I'd love for you to give some thought to, it sounds like obviously things have changed quite a bit over your career. So, if you had to summarize what some of the biggest changes that you've seen in the field over the years are, how would you do so?
2: Well, it's a big field. I, I guess the You know, when I think about sort of the field of infectious diseases and where I've come with pandemics and vaccines in mind, the new vaccines that have come about, I guess I should have counted it up, but the the childhood immunization schedule when I was in medical school looks a lot different than the one it does now. And that is the sign of the advances in science, the advances in technology, and the huge investments we've made that have changed the face of life because of the diseases that they prevent. So I think that's one part of it. I think another one again, I think in the pandemic, is the role of diagnostics. I don't want to revisit all the issues about the testing problem at the beginning, but I think that now people recognize the value of diagnostics for how they behave, whether they go out or not, in addition to how they, how they might treat themselves or go seek medical care. And I think that's another place that's going to change,
0: You know, continue to change as the diagnostics get better for more diseases. Well, Bruce, I had no idea that Katrina played such an important role in the creation of the pandemic response plan. Along those lines now, you had a plan, but you and some other experts have made an astute observation, namely that the response to COVID-19 was a case of getting the biological science right, but the behavioral science wrong. That sounds profound, would you care to elaborate on that?
2: I think that's really an important point. And I think it highlights that we don't pay enough attention to the human part of, of this because we like the technology. We, we're overcome by the technology. And I think the COVID vaccine story and even Operation Warp Speed is a good example. I mean, we, we've we all seen how miraculous that was when you put huge amount of efforts and the best science together and take big bets. I mean, they all turned out pretty well that that nobody thought that was going to happen. But there was a lot of attention to the vaccine. There was seeming a lot of attention to the logistics of delivery. They got the best person in the army who knows logistics and that's saying something to think about that. But they never thought about at the end of the road, the last into the last mile is are people going to actually show up and are they going to take it? We've heard lots about that. I think that people heard mRNA and they thought Frankenstein We didn't actually explain that as well as we could have all the way down from the the healthcare providers who were taking it, who were going to be first in line and making recommendations. It was sort of a leap of faith that, well, look, this vaccine's unbelievable. Look how good it is. Of course, people will take it and not thinking that through. And that was before it got overly politicized. But I think it, it reinforces what you said is that unless we think about what we're doing all this stuff for... And to think about the end-to-end, not just the vaccine and how it performs in an efficacy trial, but what people think about it and will they want it, we're going to be at a loss. And we often talk about the huge investments in the, the science and the technology and the relatively limited investments in understanding behaviors and how people make decisions.
1: I think Bruce, that's a perfect segue because I, I know that both in your private life as a husband and a father, and in your public life, you have probably spent decades responding to misinformation and disinformation about vaccines. So I'm curious what you've really learned from that experience and what insights you have to share with others tackling those same issues.
2: We created, and thanks to, to Bill and the largess of Vanderbilt to allow the National Network for Immunization Information to be housed at Vanderbilt, and that the goal was really about providing better information. And to helping the medical societies do that with their members, but I think that the heart of it is really trying to understand what people are hearing and what they're listening and what they believe. So I think the, the key to this is more about listening than about talking, and I, that's more like a diagnosis. What is it that people are really worried about, and then can you try to dissect that out and help them? So I think listening and empathy is a big part of it. That's a little trickier with the social media world, but I think it's a it's the basic principle to trying to figure out. How people came to the conclusion they did when it's different than yours. It's also clear that science doesn't speak for itself. Those who understand the science are going to have to be better translators of that, helping people understand that. But there's the science and then there's the scientific method. We saw that on steroids during COVID, the proliferation of reports, you know, next week is going to basically, you know, be the opposite of something you heard last week. And I think people had a hard time with that. When this is you know incremental assessments of the science, and that changes over time, the people just throw up their hands and say, "Listen, the experts have no idea. Last week they told me this. This week they're telling this, I'm just going to do what I want." Again, it gets back to the how do we understand how people make
0: decisions, and starting by hearing how people got to where they were. They don't teach all of that in medical school. We're going to have to uh, broaden our curriculum. I think you've made a key point. It starts with listening. That's, of course, something we should do and continue to do with our individual patients. We have to do it with our communities also.
2: You know, I'll give the Surgeon General a lot of credit. He put out a report earlier this year about misinformation. And in it, basically from people to corporations to educational institutions, has what everybody should do about it. And exactly what you said, Bill, for health professionals. And healthcare organizations, it's really about that. They need to be trained on how to address misinformation in ways that account for patients' diverse needs, their concerns, their backgrounds, and experiences. And you're not going to get that by talking. You're going to start by listening.
0: You spoke about the changes you've seen in public health over the course of your career. So that's kind of looking back. Now I'm going to ask you to be a futurist. Look ahead. What do you see as the greatest challenges and opportunities for the future? What, and you understand this, investments should we be making now to help secure a better future, well, for all of us?
2: We're at the cusp now, we believe, of having a much better understanding of the human immune system and therefore how we might actually design vaccines to get the immune responses that we need. That then tilts into personalized vaccinology, where maybe not everybody gets the same thing. That's going to be a huge challenge and an opportunity because that's really the counter to the traditional way we vaccinate now. We're concerned more about coverage and are people getting the right thing? And then similarly, the need to apply a lot of this science to vaccine safety and how to have a better understanding of severe adverse events. And if we can recognize those ahead of time, then we can identify the people who should step out of line and maybe get a different vaccine. So I think that the science is there to help us provide more precise opportunities for patients. But at the same time, I think is what we were talking about before, that this science is going to be increasingly complex. It's going to increasingly sound like science fiction. and Unless we have a way to explain it where people understand it and want to be a part of it when it comes down to something like a vaccine made with a new technology, then we're going to be stuck where we were before and we'll made huge investments on the upstream side and they may not have the impact because people may not buy it.
1: So we have the tools. We just need to be sure we use them appropriately.
2: That's right. That's right. So maybe we need to go to the hardware store and figure out how to do that.
1: (laughs) Perfect segue here, Bruce. For those of us who have worked with you over the years, we've always enjoyed and appreciated your tremendous sense of humor. You somehow seem to always be able to use humor to help find that healthy balance in life. So I'll ask now the question that is burning among all of us, and is laughter (laughs) truly the best medicine?
2: Well, I will tell you that my family disagrees that I'm funny. And, that, and, we, and that's a daily argument. And I'm going to make sure that they hear this when, <laughs> when we talk about it. I guess, you know, it, it's not, it may not be the best medicine. It can't hurt, but I think it actually helps in a different way because it helps you look at the problems in a different way as opposed to here are the facts, digest those facts. So I think that. It's frankly just a different perspective, and I think that that helps people maybe see things differently.
1: I agree fully, and I guess what most keeps you up at night these days. Well,
2: I'll leave the humorous part out of that because there are a lot of things that could I could fill in there. In general, the thing that I worry about, and I'm sure it's no different, to anybody, is is having made a bad, bad decision uh, that has consequences that you hadn't anticipated because you hadn't thought them through. I think is a general principle. Whether that's caring for a patient or making a policy decision and not having thought those things through. Really, the flip side of that is what what gets you up in the morning <laughs> and what do you want to do? So that and I and I think I think that you know I that that's one I think we should all be thinking about more is what drives you to get up and do something. And I, as you've heard, you know, some of these snippets, I've had by luck and being in the right place at the right time and maybe with the right attitude, incredible opportunities to be at the right place at the right time. The idea that you can be in the room when decisions are made. And try to think that you're to con- contribute those decisions is really quite something. And I think that's the thing I still want like to be a part of is, you know, what can I do today that might have an impact somewhere? I'm fortunate now that I've been at the Rockefeller Foundation for the last few years, where you have a chance to sort of look at that. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we're going to make those investments to have that kind of impact and having impacts and, and measuring those impacts are what we talk about endlessly. And I'll just say that the focus now of the foundation is all about climate change. So every program, health, food, energy, innovative financing, every one of us has had to look at each of our programs through that lens. And I'm sure I'm biased because I've been spending the last year or so looking at the climate change problem, but obviously it's going to be involved with, with every facet of life. And you know, the opportunity to think that through and what with the resources we have to make a little bit of a difference is what keeps me at least going to work although I often do it from home.
1: Bruce, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to have you. Before we do sign off, though, I would like to give you the same opportunity that we give to all of our guests, and that is, what is the myth that you would most like to bust?
2: Oh, that's easy. (laughs) At the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases is actually not for infectious diseases. (laughs) So at the 50-year mark, maybe you can get a new logo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking... Today and laughing with Dr. Bruce Gellin of the Rockefeller Foundation. Dr. Gellin is a lifelong proponent of vaccines, both here in the United States and globally. Thanks, Bruce, for a very genial and very informative discussion.
2: Well, Bill and Marla, thanks for inviting me to, to talk to you today. It's, it's really been a treat, and I look forward to not listening to me,
0: but hearing the rest of your series. <laughs>
1: Well, we'll look forward to having you back again soon, Bruce. Thanks a lot.
0: And thank you, listeners, for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas. Before we close, a word. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. By doing so, you can help extend our reach. You can follow, like, share, and download episodes on all streaming platforms as well as find us at NFID.org with links to our social channels. We love hearing from listeners, so send us any questions, comments, or concerns that may be infecting your mind.